Welcome to the Corpora Podcast, where I sit down with leading professionals and thinkers to talk all things startup law, technology, and the future of corporate law. Corpora is your startup's legal dashboard. We are changing the way that startups get legal done. Based on a very simple premise, empowering founders with the tools that they need to take care of the low stakes, simple stuff themselves, such as sending out boilerplate NDAs or offer letters, but also empowering attorneys with the tools that they need to take care of the high stakes strategic stuff more effectively, such as negotiating and closing price rounds. Our first tool is the Smart Legal Drive, which is already available. It gives companies a platform to keep their documents organized, accurate, complete, and highly searchable, and also giving you a heads up in case there are red flags in them. My name is Stepan Kuzritsyan. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Corpora, and I'm very pleased to introduce my guest for today, an exceptional corporate attorney and a good friend of mine, Edward Gregorian. I'm going to read out Edward's very impressive bio. Edward is a senior associate at Latham & Watkins, practicing out of New York and Los Angeles. He is a member of the Emerging Companies Practice and represents emerging and established technology companies, as well as venture capital and growth investors that invest in technology companies. Edward has represented technology companies and venture funds in financing transactions with a combined deal value of over $1 billion, as well as sellers and acquirers in M&A transactions with a combined deal value of over $30 billion. Edward is a graduate of Columbia University and Harvard Law School. In his free time, he lectures and writes on issues of economic development and corporate law in emerging markets. Ed, so great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me, Stepan. Thank you. It's awesome to be here. Ed, you are the OG corporate lawyer. You've seen it all. You've seen all the situations. You work with a multitude of founders. What are your thoughts in terms of when a founder should hire an attorney? Should it be before incorporating, right after incorporating? Can they hold it off until they fundraise? What are your thoughts on this? What's the best practice? Uh, first off, thanks thanks for having me step on. And uh, I'm really looking forward to discussing these issues with you. Um, this is an exciting podcast. I don't know many others like this. And uh, I think this is a great step forward to bridge the two communities of you know the founders and the lawyers and try to make them understand each other and work more closely together. So thank you for doing this. Thank you. Um, to get to your question, um, I think the answer is before incorporation. That's a simple one. So next question. <laughs> um, <laughs> Easy on the no, next yeah, one. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, yeah, I think, I think maybe it, it might make sense to take a step back and think about this a little bit. Um, I think there might be a little bit of con confusion um, when people think about their business strat strategy. The way I see it is I think the founder needs to decide what type of a business they're trying to create. Is it a traditional business or is it a startup? And my perspective is this. The traditional business is um, sort of self-funded, trying to get to profitability early on and um, it's kind of steady and slow growth. Um, a lot of your small businesses are a traditional business, right? Someone's opening a coffee shop or a local gym or things like that. A startup is a different kind of beast that where the idea is to scale as quickly as possible and you know growth at all costs kind of a situation. Mm. Um, in in the second scenario, in a startup scenario, um, you're creating both a product that you're selling to your customers, but at the same time, your company itself is a product as well because you're looking for a specific outcome whether you're looking to sell your company to a, you know, another bigger company 
or an, you know, for an IPO, you need to have a specific setup in order to be able to do that, right? Your company needs to have a certain structure. It needs to go through certain regulatory requirements, and it needs to be in the right kind of form and shape in order to do those things. So if you are trying to play the startup game, you need to engage a lawyer as early as possible because they are a key member of the team who are going to help you shape the company through the life, uh, life cycle from formation to the exit or the IPO. Mm -hmm. So it becomes much more important to call a lawyer early so they set up the right type of a you know structure for your company and carry it forward. Mm -hmm. And I'll also be curious to know your thoughts on how hands-on the attorney should be from day one, whether we're talking about high-level strategic guidance or actually doing work. We'll talk more about this later on in the okay. show. But uh, since we're talking about founders hiring attorneys, what should a founder, a founder of a venture-backed high-growth startup look for an attorney? Yeah, that's that's a good question. So if I were a founder, I would look for three things. One would be the expertise. You want to hire someone who knows what they're doing, who has substantive knowledge in the field. And, you know, um, you, you don't really want to hire a uh, you know, real estate attorney or trust attorney to do your startup work. Nothing against real estate attorneys. They're cool people. Uh, but it's just a different specialty, different almost profession, you could say, right? You could think of it as, you know, doctors, like you're not going to go get a heart surgery from a neurosurgeon and vice versa. Those are different, different kind of doctors. Um, same with lawyers. And I think most people, most founders tend to kind of lump us together, you know, like the legal profession, every lawyer is kind of a lawyer, but, but there are specialties and there are people who specialize in certain fields and you want to hire someone who has that expertise. Um, Otherwise, you're basically paying them to figure it out, and that doesn't really make sense for a startup founder. Um, the second, I would say, is experience. So they need to have done this a couple of times, right? Again, you're hiring someone to guide you through a five or 10-year pro uh, process. If they've never walked that path, they can't really guide you efficiently, right? They're probably going to make some missteps and mistakes and learn on them. So you want to hire someone who's carried a couple of companies from formation to the sale or IPO and have that experience is to know where the traps are and where to go next. And third, which is often overlooked, um, I would say someone with kind of honesty and integrity. Um, and the reason it's important, and this is kind of an interesting fact that Sort of one of the primary reasons why lawyers charge by the hour, which I know everybody hates lawyers for that, right, um, is to create independence, right? It's, it's a way to remove a conflict of interest. If you hire someone whose compensation depends on, you know, a success fee, basically, right, whether the transaction happens or not, then they have an incentive to hide the risks from you and to exaggerate the upside of it, which kind of isn't is their personal interest. What you want your lawyer to be is to be a trusted advisor who gives you the honest truth and helps you make a, a reasonable decision based on the pros and the cons. So you want someone honest who would be forthright with you, who wouldn't hide the ball from you, um, and who would have integrity and just kind of say it as it is and lay all the risks, the pros, the cons, and help you think through that. Ed, I want to you know emphasize this integrity part and honesty part and the independence part because yeah. success fees or taking a stake in your in, in the in the client's uh, uh, stockholder structure they can all potentially cloud a lawyer's judgment yeah. and you absolutely want to have that independence to you know not be willing to sort of 
rush that transaction to close it in order to to get paid for this. And you yeah. should be paid regardless if the transaction closes or not. And that right. allows you to be as as honest as possible. Um, and I also want to double click on the first thing you mentioned in terms of being the right attorney. One thing that I've seen a mistake come up again and again and again, where a client would come to me, but they had worked with another attorney before. And they were like, yeah, they were a business attorney. They were a corporate attorney. You know, right. they, they had done a lot of California LLCs and a lot of Texas corporations. Right. And they set, up, set me up with only 1,000 authorized shares of common stock. Right. It's very, very important for that person to have access to the know-how when it comes to how do you build a Delaware-based, because they're largely Delaware, right? Delaware-based, high-growth, venture-backed startup. It's a very bespoke or rather very specific niche form of corporate law. Right. That's that's exactly right. And I don't think a lot of people understand that. As I said, most people, and understandably so, there's not a lot of information out there. They think, well, a lawyer is a lawyer, especially corporate lawyer is a corporate lawyer, right? But there are, again, different ty- types of corporate lawyers. And the question I would ask is, you know, how many startups have you represented? How many mm. of them had, you know, their series A, B, C, how many of them have sold? How many of them have IPO'd? You want to get a sense of the depth of knowledge and experience the person has in dealing with exactly what you are trying to do. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I completely agree with you. And, you know, um, there are a lot of lawyers out there who are great lawyers, but they do a different kind of, you know, legal work and it's not quite applicable. I completely relate to that experience. And while we're on the topic, you know, founders sometimes do things that drive attorneys nuts. And by that, I mean, they do things that actually harm the founder and the attorney has to clean up that mess. And I'd like to, you know, ask this question as well. Of, you know, I think the attorney would much rather the founder not make the mistake, not create the headache, not have the lawyer file that certificate of validation with the Delaware Division of Corporations that's going to cost a pretty penny and take a while, than make the mistake. And even if the lawyer is going to uh, sort of financially benefit from that mistake, right. right? So there are these things founders do that drive lawyers nuts. And my favorite pet peeve is when a founder comes to me and says, well, I've signed a term sheet for a series seed price round. Did you not have my number before this? Right, right, right. What are some mistakes that you've seen founders make over and over and over again um, that are harming themselves uh, above anything? Yeah, the term sheet is a good one. Um, sometimes they come to you and they say, um, I signed a term sheet and you, you're like, well, okay, fine. We can probably deal with it. And then you read it and it's binding. Mm. And then now you can't even get out of it, right? Because mm. traditionally most term sheets are not binding. They're just kind of set of general rules. Uh, but it happens. People sign all sorts of things without discussing with a lawyer and they get excited and you look at it and they're giving away their firstborn for, you know, a bag of chips. Mm-hmm. Um, so not a great idea. Uh, generally speaking, I think most mistakes are done at an early stage. And the reason for that is, again, if you're playing the startup game, there's going to come a point at which you're raising money from probably a reasonably well-established VC fund that's effectively going to force you to hire good counsel and and make sure that your company is cleaned up. So there's kind of this natural progression where you know, you have freedom to do whatever you want and you might choose not to call a lawyer and then you will be forced to do everything by the book. So I see most of the mistakes happening between formation and their first fundraise. Mm-hmm. Um, and the kind of biggest mistakes that I see are A, the first term sheet, right? Uh, because again, sometimes they either work without a lawyer or with someone who's not an expert. Um, and two other issues. The first one is the 83B election, which mm. is huge. That could be a game over for a founder, right? Um, and in kind of to describe it briefly, what it is, it, you know, is 
when you issue yourself stock, when you form the company, this company is effectively worth nothing because there's nothing behind the company. Um, you issue yourself the stock and you know, if the stock is subject to vesting, which is very typical, right? Four year vesting with a one year cliff or sometimes it's three years. Um, the way the IRS looks at this is your taxes on the, on the value of the stock are due when the stock vests. So in your know, kind of first year, your taxes are due on the one fourth, second year, second, you know, one fourth, mm -hmm. one fourth, and one fourth. So what ends up happening if you don't file the 83B election is, you know, let's say you worked on the company very hard for a year, it comes your second, second year, you get a term sheet from a VC fund and they give you a nice 20, $30 million valuation and you're very excited, you run to the lawyer and you say, let's get to work. And they say, well, did you file an 83B election? Um, and you say, well, no, what, what is it? I don't know. Um, and what that is, is that effectively your company's worth 30 million now. So you owe the IRS taxes on the value of whatever you owe, like whatever vested in that year. Ouch. And that could be, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? Out of nowhere. And that's pretty much game over, right? You can't really fix that. You might be able to fix some of the tax down the road in the future years. But in that year when the taxes already do, you have to pay it. Um, so that's one big one that's, you know, that's, that's a scary one. Um, and another is the 409A valuation, mm. which is another issue that comes up all the time. And what that is, is effectively the IRS says, you know, you can issue options to employees or yourself. Um, if you obtain a 409A valuation, which is an independent valuation by a third party, then that creates a safe harbor. Whatever valuation they gave for those options, we will take and we won't challenge. Otherwise, we reserve the right to challenge your valuation of whatever exercise price you issued to. And if we determine that the actual value was higher than what you issued it at, then the person who received the options owes the difference, the tax on the difference, plus a 20% penalty, plus late fees, and there's a higher interest on those late fees. So it's all sorts of additional charges on top of it. And if it's an employee, the company was supposed to withhold a certain amount from that payment in taxes and you know send it to the IRS. So it becomes a nightmare and a mess. Um, it's something not a lot of founders know about. Um, they get excited, they issue options from the pool, you know, they form the company through some website and something like that. And uh, yeah, they end up owing a bunch of taxes. And taxes, as you know, you know, you can't really fight that. That's just something that you have to pay. So you gotta be very careful and thoughtful about that. Death and taxes, right? As yeah, exactly. <clears throat> right. 490 evaluation, 83B election, and that that term sheet. Yes, those the, are kind of the big three. And and to recap, how long does a founder have to file that 83B election and from what time? So 30 days from the issuance of stock, and it's a hard deadline. You can call them, you can cry, you can plea, you can do whatever you want. You're probably not even going to get through the you know, yeah. line like they know pick up. Hours. But even if you do, there's just, there's no way. Like it's 30 days done. 30 days to file that 83B election. But here you have it. That's one of the common mistakes. And you talked about the 490 evaluation. Another one of those mistakes that I've seen come up over and over is the company uh, promising the options or so to speak, granting the options in the offer letter and thinking, well, yeah, we've granted the options, but then you right. get that term sheet, the company is now worth $30 million right. and you haven't granted those options. So right. you can't backdate that. That's a big no-no. Right. And you, you have to get that new foreign evaluation and you're hurting your, your, your staff, your employees by doing that, by not granting them the options as early as possible and waiting on that.
Absolutely. I would say anything that relates to issuance of stock, which is effectively transfer of value, right? You're transferring value to someone. You should discuss with a lawyer because there are definitely tax consequences. There's securities law consequences and just generally good for you to understand how this works and have someone guide you through it. Mm -hmm. Ed, let's talk fundraising. Um, not all companies, as you mentioned, are bootstrapped, um, but right. those that are, uh, you know, supposed to be venture backed, then they have to raise funds from VCs mm -hmm. and angels. And that's a very tough thing to do, especially in this environment today. Um, so founders have to put their best foot forward. Legally, what does this look like? What are some best practices that founders should pay attention to on the legal front as they prepare for an equity around, say, six to 12 months down the line? Right. That's a, that's a good question. So. <clears throat> A lot depends on the economic environment, right? Like currently the market is a little tougher to fundraise um, and it becomes particularly important to pay attention to um, the legal aspects and the details of the process. I would say typically what I see, there's the business case for raising money, right? You have to have you know, the justification why someone should invest in your company. That's a separate topic and we can talk about it. From the legal perspective, what matters the most, I would say, is the timing. You want to be quick. You want to be efficient because oftentimes um, the speed affects the likelihood of the deal happening, especially if it's an uncertain economic environment when VCs are pooling their funds and they're not sure they want to invest and there's all sorts of doubt and uncertainty. Give, creating an additional time kind of gap mm -hmm. and complexity and diligence and not being prepared for the fundraise gives the investors a reason to cancel the deal, pull the money and just change their mind. So you want to go into the fundraise being prepared, having cleaned up your house, having your documents in order, having them organized, ready to dispatch them as soon as possible and coordinating with your lawyers so they are ready on their end as well to move fast and get through the negotiation, term sheet negotiation and the closing process as soon as possible to avoid giving the investor reason to hesitate, doubt, uncover potential diligence issues, and just kind of get into this whole mm -hmm. messy situation. I want to emphasize that line, keeping your house in order. Right. It seems like a very simple thing to do, but it often, you know, things fall through the cracks, documents are all over the place, and it's very, very important at any given time for the company to have their house in order. Right. I, I, I completely agree with that. Um, yeah, you do. You definitely don't want to lose a deal just because, you know, your company is a mess and, and right. you're slow to find documents and and produce them. It's it's not a good reason to lose mm -hmm. a deal. Let's talk about how hands on the attorney should be with the company. I've noticed this dichotomy um, while I was practicing law and, and now as well, in that you have founders and some, I'm surprised to say, some very seasoned advisors as well that say, you know what, lawyers are only for the high stakes stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't you don't need a lawyer for anything else. Yeah, uh, everything else, the, the low stakes stuff, there's a lot of templates out there. Do it yourself. Don't even call a lawyer. Don't even work with the lawyer. Good enough is good enough. You know, if if something comes up, you'll 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 clean it up later. Mm -hmm. Um the attorney is just for the high stakes stuff. But then on the other side you have uh, attorneys, some attorneys rather, uh, say, you know what? No, every situation requires not only our guidance, but are also our hands-on involvement. You know, we have to draft every contract. We have to review every contract. We have to be involved in every deal. It's a very bespoke, very specific, every situation. Nothing is boilerplate. Nothing is cookie cutter. And a phrase that comes to mind there is pay us now or pay the price later. Mm -hmm. What do you think is the right approach? 
Are there tasks that are simple enough for founders to take care of themselves, maybe with some high-level attorney guidance? Um, how should attorneys think about this and what should their approach be in terms of guiding the startup through the process? How hands-on should they be? What's the right balance? Yeah, I think, honestly, the answer is probably somewhere in the middle, closer to a little bit of pay us now or pay us <laughs> you know, higher <laughs> price later. Um, and the reason is, so there are a couple of reasons. One, as we briefly discussed, right? This is a process. It's a process from forming your company to fundraising to going through certain regulatory requirements and then an M&A or an IPO exit. So you sort of have to go through those things. You can't quite skip it. Like you mm -hmm. can try to skip it, but once you get to the next level, whoever is the gatekeeper at the next level is gonna say, well, now go back and fix that and, and come to me again. And oftentimes you said fixing an issue is much more expensive than doing it right from the beginning. Um, and I'll give you an example. I've never heard a founder say, I am so glad I formed the entity myself and I saved a couple of hundred dollars that made the difference. I've never heard that. Um, I've heard the opposite. I've heard mm -hmm. that, oh my God, I wish I paid the, you know, a couple of hundred dollars and at least asked the lawyer how to do this before just doing this myself. Um, so I think, at the very least, it's important to have a lawyer in your corner to, again, at least guide you in the right direction, to tell you, look, these are the things you should definitely avoid. You know, file your AD3B, mm -hmm. you know, do your 49A. Um, and, and like after that step, you need to balance the lawyer's involvement with the legal budget that you have. Mm -hmm. Obviously startups don't have unlimited money and they have to make difficult decisions whether they're investing this dollar in building the product or marketing the product or or the legal spend. Um, but there needs to be a balance where the lawyers and the founders work together to minimize the cost for a startup in the beginning to focus on the key issues that come up all the time that present a significant risk to the startup. And as the startup grows and raises more money or becomes profitable, starts to face bigger challenges, the lawyers need to be more and more involved because again, it becomes much more complex and it requires bespoke solutions often to the bespoke business, right? And I think one thing that people don't talk about enough is, you know, the startup founders are trying to create an innovative product, something that has never been done before, something that's, you know, a novelty or changing the industry you can't quite do that and put it in the existing legal standardized legal form right that doesn't quite exist if you are trying to create something bespoke chances are your legal issues are going to be bespoke mm -hmm. so you do need a human being to look at that and say well this is probably how we need to solve this problem you can't quite apply kind of the rubber stamp solution to something creative that you're doing. Very different. Right. And of course, uh, <clears throat> in that sense, there are a lot of companies out there that follow a very standard approach, but then you have the very, very innovative and ambitious companies that are in very niche areas that can't follow the, the standard approaches. You know, on that question, you said that you lean more towards the pay us now mm -hmm. or pay the price later. Loyalty rates tend to be very handsome. You know, depending on the type of law firm, it can go upwards from 500 to upwards of $1,000. Um, and this creates an issue, an access to law issue, a gap between what startups need and what they can afford. You know, what are some one or more sustainable solutions to this? You know, possible candidates can be 
lawyers experimenting with alternative fee structures, such as flat fees or a recurring monthly subscription, or deferring fees until financing, for example, or utilizing technology to alleviate some of the grunt work that attorneys do, and as mentioned, helping founders do it instead. What's your take on this? How do we solve the access to law problem that's apparent in law generally? I mean, it's also known as access to justice at times, but in startups specifically. It's a good question. Yeah, I think I'm I'm very pro technology. Um, I think it's in in a sense the low hanging fruit that a lot of those tasks could be outsourced to technology and made more efficient, which would save a lot of money. Um, so that kind of priority number one, I think, for law firms and lawyers to implement as much technology as they can within sort of parameters of integrity and and you know ethics and all. Mm-hmm. Um, so that could solve a big chunk of the problem. Now, I think the second solution is, and and I know different law firms experiment with different ways of fixed fees, as you said, and subscription. And I'm, and it's very, relatively new, and I'm curious to see where that goes, where that kind of picks up, and the founders would be happy with that or not. Um, I don't have a formed opinion on that yet, so I'm monitoring the market. I would be curious to see where that goes. But where I think it is important for the lawyers and the founders to work together is to... Um, match the stage and the legal need of the company um, to kind of the level of involvement of the lawyers. Um, as, as you mentioned, at an early stage, it, it needs to be a long-term partnership, right? You are hiring a lawyer, again, if you're if you entering the startup game, you're hiring a lawyer potentially, hopefully, for the next five to 10 years until you sell the company or IPO. Um, so they need to be with you long-term. And it is a partnership just like you're partnering with a co-founder, right? At an early stage, the lawyer provides an outsized value and they probably don't make a lot of money. They might give you a fixed fee. It might be a fixed you know, price package for a formation and, and your option pool and your option grants and all that. Um, there's more value coming to the founder than you know to, to the lawyer. And as the company grows and develops and the legal needs expand, um, the lawyer starts to provide more and more services and collect more and more fees. And they grow together. That way, the incentives are aligned. The long-term incentives are aligned. And I think that is the solution for a lot of the startups to work with their lawyer to um, kind of stage that in multiple stages, right? Early stage, minimum cost, most value received, sort of mid-stage where there's value received and value paid back that's roughly mm-hmm. equal. And then at a late, later stage when there's an M&A or an IPO or an exit, the company has more ability to compensate the lawyer for sticking with them for the last 10 years. I think that's an excellent insight, Ed. One that other startup lawyers who don't think that way should hear, but also founders should hear because it's a very, it lays the groundwork of a very symbiotic relationship. You know, the attorney helps the founder grow. The founder in turn appreciates and helps the attorney um, benefit financially from being a loyal servant essentially through the years. It's a very, you know, very, symbiotic, mutually beneficial relationship. And I think that can be an excellent model for for companies to think about as they onboard their lawyer. As you mentioned, that lawyer has to be uh, a business partner and not just a third-party vendor that you sort of ping every now and then. You you start that journey with that person and hopefully go the full length 
with that person. I absolutely agree. I, I would think about it as, you know, when you have a co-founder um, or early team member, you give them equity. They don't get paid a lot, right? Mm -hmm. Early stages. And as the time goes by, their salary might be increasing a little bit. At the, at the end, there's an M&A or an IPO and then they cash out, yeah. right? It's, it's very similar. So same way the lawyer, you know, gives outsized value and helps as much as they can and contributes the time. Um, and over time, the payback increases as, as the mm -hmm. company grows and the incentives are aligned and everyone's happy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's talk more about technology, artificial intelligence specifically. You know, it's on everybody's lips and minds. It's on all of our feeds and it's disrupting industries, right? A lot of verticals and legal is, is up there with those verticals. Uh, how should we think about this? How should lawyers think about this? Should AI or will AI replace lawyers? Do we want that to happen? You know, a very freeform, broad question just to share your thoughts on uh, how you see this. Um, good question. Yeah. I mean, I think AI will replace lawyers if AI replaces humans. <laughs> That's the only outcome that I see where lawyers are replaced. Um, otherwise, I am pretty excited about the AI. Obviously, it comes with its challenges, but I think it could be a helpful tool if the lawyers and any other profession, honestly, works closely with with AI. Um, and you know, as we briefly discussed, a lot of the simpler tasks could be outsourced, already could be outsourced to the AI, and a lot of law firms I know that they're starting to implement um, AI into their their processes. So I think I think that's exciting. I think everyone's going to benefit from it. I think the costs are going to come down for the startups and the work is going to become more interesting for the lawyers. Um, but I do think it has to be a balancing act because we don't want to over-standardize everything. I think mm -hmm. there's great efficiency in standardizing certain things, but we don't want to make everything cookie cutter because life is not cookie cutter. People are not cookie cutter. Every deal is somewhat bespoke, right? When you're negotiating a deal against the counterparty, you know, there's some specifics, there's there's some distinctions, you know, from one deal to another. You can't quite say, well, this is the standard template. We're all going to use the standard template because that's how innovation and evolution is, you know, killed, right? you do still need different, you, you need a different mind, you need a different deal, you need different type of thinking, you need constant change and evolution. Someone needs to come up with an idea and say, no, I'm not gonna do it the way that it's been done for the last hundred years. That's how innovation happens. So I think there's a, there's a difficult balance between using AI to standardize certain things and to you know mechanize them and make everyone's life simpler and more efficient, but also not kill innovation and just become lazy and say, well, the AI can do it. We as humans no longer need to be creative or think about anything. It does everything for us. Mm -hmm. That's a great answer, Ed. And one word that you used is very dangerous, overstandardization, right? Mm -hmm. We don't want that happening, especially in law, because it cannot be overstandardized. Right. A right. template is just a starting point. Right. Unfortunately, a lot of legal tech companies out there do tend to overstandardize, which it's, it's far removed from the way that law should be practiced and the way that we lawyers think about uh, situations. But um, to, to riff off another point you mentioned, AI will replace lawyers if AI replaces humans, because right. a lot of what we do as lawyers has a very uh, human element to it. Right, no, exactly. Um, yeah, um, we advise people on how to deal with other people, right? It's just inherently human. And I don't, I mean, maybe one day I will be as sophisticated to do that, but I just can't imagine the world being the same if that ever happens. And 
I honestly don't want to see a world like that. I do. I love humans. I, I think it's great. Like we have a lot of challenges, but you know, we are humans and we're society and, uh, you know, I, I'd like to see this continue. <laughs> Ed, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for sharing all these golden insights. My guest today was Edward Gregorian, Senior Associate at Latham & Watkins. Ed, thank, thank you so much. Thank you, Stepan. This was great.